the incomparable. Number 379, November 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and we're here uh, in this episode to talk about 1986's Jim Henson film, Labyrinth. Or as I like to say, it's The Muppet Show with very special guest David Bowie! Sort of. Um, I've never heard you say that. Sure. I like to say that. Uh, here, Here to talk about this movie, which involves people and Muppets and a baby are the following babies are people too are the following wonderful people uh david j lore is here hello i watched lady hawk you made I'm sorry you chose badly damn uh, monty ashley is here hello uh you left off a dog in a rare dual role yeah is it is it sometimes a dog and sometimes a muppet this is one of my questions it is also mm-hmm. yes. yes yes um but it's two dog. he plays two dogs let's let's be fair sometimes i'm a person and sometimes i'm a muppet too shannon sutterth <laughs> is also here hello Hola, Frikis. Making her very first incomparable appearance, Katie Mack is here. Hello. Hello. It's good to have you. And of course, how could we talk about Labyrinth without uh, pretty much the reason we're doing this episode, which is Erica Ensign, who loves Labyrinth. (laughs) Hello. Uh, Thank you so much, Jason. It's been 217 episodes since I joined The Incomparable. (laughs) And we're finally talking about my favorite film. Your plan has come to fruition at last. (laughs) It is my my low-key goal in life to talk about, on as many podcasts as possible, both Labyrinth and the Doctor Who story, The Rebus Operation. And tonight, I actually get to talk about both, but we'll get there. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. It's the long con. This is the longest of cons. So... So Labyrinth, really, just I want to I want to start with listing the people involved in making this because it is fascinating. So 1986, I don't know what happened. I just totally missed that this film existed when I was 15 years old. Um, Jim Henson directed it. There are lots of Muppets in it, but there are also people in it. Um, Terry Jones is credited as having written the screenplay, although apparently lots of people worked on the screenplay, including a last minute comedy polish to, to, uh, uh, please the star that was done by Elaine May, which blows my mind. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's there. Uh, <laughs> it stars David Bowie, of course, as the Goblin King and a very young Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly is only about two months uh younger than me and she's yeah and and monty i think was born the same year that i was and david is about my age too six months older than me so um so a contemporary and so yeah when she was what 14 or whatever jennifer connelly made labyrinth and so and she is she is the protagonist although of course david bowie gets top billing because it's david bowie but jennifer connelly's in almost every shot like she, it's true <laughs> she's the star yeah i was thinking about it as as like this is my eighth grade classmate or whatever basically because that's basically it like except mm-hmm. that they, then she was in a movie um so she left the left the eighth grade and went and and was in a movie instead a movie uh produced by george lucas <laughs> Don't yeah. forget to mention yeah. him. Oh, yeah. Did, did I not mention? Of course. Why not? Not yet. <laughs> you got like two names into the number of people well, involved. There's, in there's so, no, there's so, there's so many. But the, George Lucas is a good example. But I was thinking about George Lucas throughout this movie because, of course, one of the things that I was thinking of while watching it is interesting uses of mixing up puppets with people. And I, I've always thought that one of the 
interesting decisions the Star Wars movies made was saying, you know, the new Jedi Master that uh, Luke has to go meet, it's going to be a puppet. Like to mm-hmm. be like, no, it's fine. We're we're gonna have characters who are puppets, and um, and I was thinking about that with uh, with Labyrinth because, of course, most of the characters in this film are puppets. The main uh, puppet isn't a puppet, which I think is fascinating. Hoggle mm-hmm. is yeah. he looks like a muppet, but that's a little person wearing an animatronic puppet head that's being manipulated from off screen. By four different people. Wow, I was wondering about that. So that way you can have the character walk around mm-hmm. and do things, but still have all of the Muppety expressions on the face. <laughs> so he's got a puppet head, but a person mm-hmm. walking around. Yeah, yeah. With, with 18 separate motors in, in the yeah. face of Hoggle. So four people had to all work oh. together to make expressions on the face of this not real contraption. And then Sherry Weiser, who is the little person who is inside, had to you know move at just the right time and in just the right way so that her motions matched the you know what the the puppet was saying and the expressions and stuff it was mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous eventually they would invent computers yeah. plus she had wolverine hands she had she had mm-hmm. to like things extending her her fingers that she had to work with too that character required so much work and i'm sold on it like i am convinced that hoggle mm-hmm. is a character when i'm watching the movie mm-hmm yeah, he was really well done. Hashtag Hoggle's a person. Muppets <laughs> <laughs> are people too. I'm telling you, Muppets are people too. I um and I did have in addition to thinking about Star Wars, I obviously was thinking about the Muppet Show and the the fact that the same same thing. It doesn't bother me. It's just it's a it's not something you see a lot. I also was thinking about Farscape, which is a, sh- a TV show that some people don't like, Erica, but I like. Uh. <laughs> and yeah. and it's the same thing where it's like we have weird alien characters. They're going to be puppets. Brian Henson was a uh, producer it's in some on cases Farscape. The same yeah. people, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Touch the puppets, and uh, there's a moment where where um, where she, I think, uh, hugs. Well, she hugs several. She hugs Hoggle. She hugs Ludo. She hugs she, all she, the puppets. She hugs a lot. But I, I remember. I remember listening to people talk about making um, Farscape and uh, how Brian Henson had to tell the directors and the actors, like, no, no, touch the puppets. Like, if you touch the puppets, they are real and they're in the scene and everybody's Mm -hmm. interacting with them. If you stay away from the puppets because you're afraid because it's a puppet, everybody will know that it's fake. And I was thinking about that while I was watching Labyrinth, too, because, yes, she hugs all the puppets at various points. And it's good. It's good because it makes them feel real. That's the thing that always worked with The Muppet Show is that, you know, I believe Kermit is real, right? I never doubt that because he is so completely realized. And, you know, when, when I've done puppetry, I try to do that, too. I still remember the time I was I was messing with a puppet around my dad and and he just instinctively responded to the puppet and he was doing a recording thing and he held the microphone to the puppet. And then he then he kind of looked at me and went. All right. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it was it was the same kind of realism. It was it was like you are totally engaging with the puppet. And Ludo has a serious Sweetums vibe, which I love Sweetums. Yeah. So I love yeah. Ludo too. I'm admitting that now. I love Ludo. <laughs> Uh, but we should back up. Jason I, I, I wanna... is friend. <laughs> smell bad. Um, I smell good. Yeah. See what I did there. Um, let's let's. Uh, I want to. I want everybody's relationship with with Labyrinth because as I've admitted, I had none, and I just watched this movie yesterday. But I I would like a little uh, backstory of how you came to discover it and what it uh, what it means to you. And we'll start with Erica because I feel like I want to hear that story. 
Um, you know, I don't even remember exactly when I discovered. I know it was not when the movie came out. I did not watch this movie as as a little kid. I discovered it probably early high school. I want to say, which honestly was the like the the best time for for me to imprint on this movie because <laughs> of the David Bowie thing. Because he was dreamy, and here was a fourteen year old girl who was you know escaping her world. So I found it at just the right time, and I think like my my super hardcore David Bowie fandom started with this movie, and I just I watched it multiple times. Uh, I think I taped it off the Disney Channel when we had a free preview of the Disney Channel, and like paused out all the commercials, and then later <laughs> recorded it again when it was on with like no commercials. And then at one point, I owned five copies of this movie because <laughs> I just had it on so many different media. And when I went away to college, it became like my comfort thing. I would I would watch Labyrinth several times a week because it like it just it made me feel safe and like I was at home. Um, so my roommate learned Labyrinth just as well as I did by force. <laughs> and do you do you keep uh, do you watch it every so often? I do. I do. I probably watch. I mean, at this point, I don't watch it as often as I used to, probably only like once a year. It's not like once a week anymore. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I definitely keep my hand in there. I, I still watch it pretty regularly. Ah, see, because it's keep a Muppet. It's a puppet. Right? You, you keep, keep your, your hand, hand in there. <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh, Katie, what's your uh, history with Labyrinth? So I'm, I must have seen it right when it came out because I remember being a very young, very confused child uh, when I first saw this movie. And I think I... I specifically remember that it was it was before the the time when I learned that sometimes men have long hair and wear frilly shirts um, <laughs> because I was terribly confused that that the Goblin King was was a man. <laughs> and I think that, that you know I, I there are things there are things that I did not see when I was that young a child. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I definitely remember that, and I remember it being kind of a scary movie. And, um, and, uh, just loving all of the sort of logic puzzles and things in it like that. I thought, I thought that was really fun at the time. So, so I definitely remember seeing it, uh, when I was very, very young. And then, um, I haven't seen it that many times since then. I think I've only seen it like twice since the first time. And, uh, one of them was, uh, just this evening. So, um, I have, I have very strong, uh, sort of very young memories of it and it, it's it was very interesting to watch it again just now shannon what about you uh i think i saw it in the theaters uh i was a i was a fan of the dark crystal i liked the fantasy i liked the puppetry of it i liked the um i liked the scale and scope of that movie so you know here's another movie with muppets and hey david bowie i'm down um i was in college and so i think um probably you know a group of us went to uh to watch it um, and had a good time. Uh, I was, I was still just young enough to relate to Sarah. I think. I think if I'd been a couple years older, I might have been a little bit less um, enthusiastic about it. But I was still at the right time. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, bought the v- bought the VHS tape when it came out. Um, and you know, every once in a while, when I like, kind of like Erica, when you want something, you know, good to read something like a comfort thing, um, I would go back and watch it here and there. Although it's been several years, I had to, uh, I had to dig to find the DVD uh, in order to watch it yesterday for the first time in several years. And, you know, so some things are a bit different now, but I I still love it. Okay, Monty, what about you? Um, I was 16 when this came out. And I saw all the fantasy movies that came out back then. 
And I will just briefly say, kids, today you don't know how lucky you got it. (laughs) Someday we will talk about the movie Legend, and I will rant for like 10 minutes on how disappointing I found that movie. And Lady Hawk. I thought Lady Hawk was okay. Legend, I was furious. I'm still furious at Legend. (laughs) I look forward to that podcast, Monty. So you've got the scene. I'm a 16-year-old D&D playing kid. I see every fantasy movie. Also, huge fan of The Muppets. And huge fan of Monty Python. So, of course, I saw this in the theaters. Mm -hmm. And I liked it a lot. And I've seen it 10 or 15 times since then, I think. Very fond of this movie. And David? I I saw it at the time. I, you know, again, huge fan of the Muppets. Huge fan of Monty Python. And I, I, even at the time, I respected the Dark Crystal without actually enjoying it. But I liked the the world of it and, and the creation of it. And seeing this, uh, seeing the previews for this, sort of like, well, okay, uh, he's he's applying the same kind of imagination, but it's also going to be fun. Um, and and at the time, I mean, my mother and I loved watching all these things and comparing and contrasting fairy tales and myths and all the different, you know, trying to see where all the influences were. And and it's like, okay, you're going to take uh, Henson and Lucas and and Terry Jones, and they're going to make up a fairy tale from whole cloth. Let's see what their influ- influences are, and let's see how they do it. And and I remember we we, we liked it. We we didn't not like it, um, but it wasn't something that was like you know oh, let's watch this 20 and 30 times but it was good you know it was fine um it was interesting watching it with with the boys today because i remember very clearly my mother hated sarah in the real world in the first 15 minutes of the movie <laughs> i'm just like she's they, they they make her too unpleasant and too unrealistic and then she's just instantly nice once she's in the fantasy world, and that is exactly how the boys reacted without any setup for it, without any, you know, here's what your grandmother thought about this 30 years ago. Um, they just instinctively were like, wow, she's a brat. And as soon as she gets in the fantasy world, it's like, I hope she gets eaten by a monster. It's like, no, no, that's not what's going to happen. She's going to be fine. And she saves the baby. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but yeah, once once they got to the fantasy world... The boys were engaged with it, too. And I was like, all right, it still works. It's still, you know, the effects aren't what they're used to from modern movies, but they're going with the story. They're going with the humor. They're going with Jim Henson. Yeah, I have to take issue with the idea that Sarah's brattiness at the beginning is unrealistic because I was a 14 year old girl. Oh, that oh, was it's, it's totally was realistic. Fine. It's just it's I, I, I think it's a little too far for this. Because because there's no there's no arc. It's just like she's instantly different. I think that now, but I didn't when I was in high school. I was totally on her side from moment one, probably the first 35 times I saw this movie. I think what you realize at the end of the movie, or at least what I realize at the end of the movie, is that Sarah doesn't have any friends. <laughs> okay. Except Merlin. She has a dog she loves, but she's the kind of kid who would rather, who spends her time reading fantasy novels and trying to remember lines for a play she's not in out playing by herself yeah she's yeah pretending i had forgotten some of that and and even at the time i remember being very confused like what is she doing is is it a book is it a play is it a game she's trying to remember and that that isn't really made clear she's playing pretend i did the same thing when i was a little kid i would make up my own stories or act out my favorite stories and you know i didn't need anybody else with me 
I didn't have a book that I was reading from and I didn't get upset that I forgot the line. I just made up a different line. So it was it was a little weird to me. This week's episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by HelloFresh, a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging, and they come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits, so you know which ingredients go with which recipes. They offer a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the Classic Plan, which has a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the Veggie Plan, which is vegetarian recipes with plant-based proteins, and the Family Plan, quick and easy meals everyone in your family will love. And better yet, you can choose your delivery day. Find the day that works best with your schedule. We definitely have calculated hours here at my house, the one that works the best with our schedule. And you can even pause your account for weeks at a time. You go and vacation, you're sort of not feeling up to it, you want to, you know, you've, you're too busy, uh, just pause it, it's super easy, and then resume it when you're ready and you don't get charged while you are not getting deliveries. Um, you won't spend all night in the kitchen either. One of the nice things about this is even though you're making a recipe from these component ingredients that are fresh, that were delivered to you instead of like from a mix or something like that prepackaged, you're making them naturally uh, yourself. But it still only takes about half an hour. Lots of one-pot recipes for seriously speedy cooking and minimal cleanup from HelloFresh. Each week, there's a 20-minute meal on the classic menu for when you really don't have much more time, but you'd still want to be able to make something fresh at home. We've tried HelloFresh. I'm a real believer in these services. I think that the meals are great. They expand your menu because the beauty of it is that they give you the menu. You make the thing. You've learned new cooking techniques and you've learned new dishes that you can go to the store and buy more ingredients and remake those. So it expands your palate. It's not just about building uh, a menu week by week with the stuff that they send you, but it's also building a repertoire of things that you can make yourself. And as As a result, our menus over the whole week are way more diverse now than they were before. So for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code INCOMPARABLE30. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring The Incomparable. Oh, something that I picked up on this time around that I'm not sure I picked up on before um, was in like in her room, seeing the different things in her room. One of the last things we see in the pan is the scrapbook. Her mother's an actress. Yeah. yeah. So an actress yeah. who starred with David Bowie in, yeah. in a stage play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, apparently that was part of the reason that mom's not in the picture anymore. She's you know too busy chasing her career. So Sarah's, you know, trying to do the same kind of thing. And I had not picked up on that particular, uh, particular nuance before. Yeah. I think the scrapbook is important. And then when you get to the end of the movie, you know, everything's fine, but I'm all alone again. No surprise. All of your friends from the terrifying <laughs> world you were just in are still here. And, and she has friends again. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the implication too, is that this is one of those, it, the movie doesn't really lean hard into it, but I feel like what, one of the things it's doing is saying, is this all her, you know, her imagination. We're watching a fantasy right. movie, but you know, the, the lines that she's reading, the fact that her dog is named Merlin, um, the fact that there are, um, 
Maurice Sendak books, uh, mm-hmm, including mm-hmm. In, including Outside Over There, which essentially is the plot of this. Um, yeah. And The yeah. Wizard of Oz is in there, I think. And, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, so it's the Escher painting. Right, exactly. Yeah. She's got the Escher painting. So, so there is that strong suggestion that you know what we're what we're really viewing is her fantasy world and the story that comes out of the the objects in her life. Yeah, there's even a model of Hoggle as a bookend. Yeah, so it's it's not like there's a one of those, huh? It was just a dream. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole point here is that this didn't really happen because yeah, it did. It's, except right. that it did because <laughs> the point of view character from the beginning to the end of the film is actually the owl, which we now know is Jareth. Well, two two reasons we know it really happened. One, we see the characters come out again at the end of the movie, so it's not a Wizard of Oz, you were all there. But also, this was a few years after Time Bandits, which did the same thing, and also said, no, it really happened, even though all of those things you saw were also Kevin's toys. That's just something the Pythons like. I just like that it, it it's like, look, I like that you made the reference so we can see that all these things are in a room. I don't need this to be part of the movie. Like, it doesn't need to be one of those, like, but what really happened? Because, you know, it's a movie. Exactly. It's fine. My 15-year-old was going, this is a little on the nose when we're getting up to that point. You know, why is it named Merlin? Come on, there are other names. You could be more subtle. 14-year-old girls aren't. 14-year-old girls written by uh, middle-aged English men. Um, but when uh, when they get to the book pan and, you know, the thought that, oh, well, that's going to be on the nose, too. And he's like, no, 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 I like that. They, they got that from Wrath of Khan, didn't they? I'm like, well, no, that's like a movie technique. But he got the idea that that was a very important, like, here are the things, here are the influences. Here are the things you should know. I think one of the things that delighted me about this movie is that there are all these things where it goes exactly opposite of where a normal yes. movie would go, including mm-hmm. uh, among them, I'll mention um, the, oh, what's his name? Uh, Sir Didymus. Where every time that he's confronted, he does the opposite of what you'd expect. So they surround him and he says, ha I have you surrounded, which I think is really great. And then at the end, there is that moment where, where you do expect like her to just be alone. And that's the end of the movie because they're like, we, you can call on us anytime you want. And I thought, okay, that, that's cute. And, and then she's like, oh, but I want you now. And they're like, all right, well, then we're all here. And, and it's, again, it's just like throughout the movie, it's sort of like, now yeah, you're expecting expectations are dumb we're just going to do this other, the thing you don't expect because we like it yeah like the head fake towards it all being a dream about 80 mm-hmm. percent of the way through the movie when you're thinking yeah boy this is really yeah. early for her to wake up isn't it <laughs> right <laughs> well and one of the other things i like with sir didymus where it again it's not what you're expecting is when he's confronting them at the bridge and you you can't pass and no one no one gets passed oh, without yeah. permission and finally she just says well can we have your permission and he goes Yes. And that's it. That's the whole, you know, there's no riddle. There's no challenge. And that's something that like sort of travels throughout the movie. Sarah learning to ask the right questions. Because at first she's just asking, you know, how do I get through the labyrinth? How do I get through the labyrinth? And to have the right words, too. Yeah, exactly. I love that that's her responsible for getting past the challenge. It's not her companions, yes. which happens in a lot of stories like this, and it's not luck, which happens in almost all stories like this. She actually thinks her way around a lot of the obstacles she faces, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, let's see what so what, what how do I want to approach? That? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna recap the plot. I mean, her little brother <laughs> is stolen away by the Goblin King, who is David Bowie, and uh, she has to go <laughs> and, through the labyrinth. 
the title, the titular labyrinth, in order to uh, go to the castle and rescue her brother. And then she has adventures along the way and meets a lot of interesting people. That's your Wizard of Oz component as she builds up a, a, a kind of group of friends and mm-hmm. uh, she, you know, she has to double back at one point and... There's a great gag that is a very Monty Python gag right at the beginning, which is, oh, don't go that way. Go the other way. Mm-hmm. And she goes yeah. the other way. And then and then the old lady says, huh, if she went that first way, she would have just gone straight to the castle. Oh, that's oh, so yeah. great. The first time I saw this movie, that killed me. I could not I could not get over the fact that she like almost she almost just went straight for the prize and then she didn't. And it, it took me probably like... 10 or 15 years of watching this movie before it finally <laughs> dawned on me that oh if she'd have gone straight to the castle no movie. she wouldn't have made all of these friends she probably wouldn't have been like it, it, no it took me a long time yeah. to get she there. wouldn't have been ready she had to yeah. grow and get through those experiences exactly. yeah, and sure have the people around her yep. the uh, chapel it. perilous she also does just get continuously cleverer about um, you know about mm-hmm. asking the right questions, about not taking things for granted, as she says, and you know solving all these puzzles. So maybe if if that had happened toward the end of the movie, she would have just done that. But at the mm-hmm. beginning, she had to be pretty naive about these things. Totally. And actually, this is the moment. This is the moment that I get to talk about my Doctor Who crossover. Okay. Because <gasps> only only last year when I saw this movie in the theater, they were they do. Um, uh, like 11 a.m. screenings of, of old kids movies on Saturdays uh, here in Edmonton. And they showed Labyrinth and I was so excited. So we went to see it. And as the credits were rolling, Stephen, my spouse, who's a crazy Doctor Who fan, noticed uh, the name Timothy Bateson credited as the voice of the worm, who's the one that, you know, mm. invites her in for tea and tells her not to go that way. And he played Binro the Heretic in my oh. very favorite Doctor Who story ever, The Remus Operation. <laughs> and it just blew my mind that it had been this many years and I'd watched this movie so many times and not known that that same guy. He also actually does the voice of one of the uh, one of the guards who do the, the riddle, speaking of, of making her cleverer and cleverer and trying to figure things out. Also, we'll do, for equal time, we will point out at this point, David uh, will appreciate this, that the choreography for this film, done by <laughs> Gates McFadden, TV's Dr. Crusher from Star Trek mm-hmm. The Next Generation. Really? Yeah, I did not yep. know that. She's not credited as Cheryl. She really was the dancing doctor. Yeah, she's she started as a dancer, and that's huh. that's why they they incorporated that into into Crusher's character. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I thought that was one. Of, that was just some random backstory that never was never had anything to do with anything. That's great. And now it's all connected. <laughs> she choreographed, and she's also one of the dancers in the ballroom scene. Ah, uh-huh. makes sense. Yes. Oh, right. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about Sarah, about uh, Jennifer Connelly's character here. One of the things that I noticed in watching this movie is that um, it is like she is her journey through the labyrinth, as we've been saying all along. She is growing as a person throughout this, which I really like and gaining confidence. And I like that the resolution of the story at the end is essentially that the Goblin King has no power over her or control of her and she can make her own decisions. And that in the end, the basically the jig is up as soon as she realizes that and uh i i really enjoyed that um i i i want to point out like casting jennifer Connolly. 
um, if you look at who who read for this part, I mean, she was an unknown. I think she'd been in one movie before this. And now, you know, she went on to be a very well-known award-winning actress. But at this point, she was reading uh, along with, I'm going to just read from the Wikipedia article because it is <laughs> mind-bending that oh, yeah. all of these people <laughs> read for Sarah. Helena Bonham Carter, Jane Krakowski, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, Marissa Tomei, Laura Dern, Ali Sheedy, uh, and Mia Sarah, along with Jennifer Connelly. Uh, and she got the part. And you know what? I think what I like about her in this is, yes, I like that it's Jennifer Connelly and we all know it. And we know that she uh, grows up to be in The Rocketeer and A Beautiful Mind and all sorts of other movies. But I, I she feels very much like a real kid a real 14 15 Mm -hmm. year old kid here and um i think that's part of the part of the appeal of it is that she just seems like a regular person who is learning uh starting down the path not even all the way just starting down the path of having self-confidence and realizing she can make her own decisions and ration you know rationalize things or or reason things out and solve those puzzles and get what she needs to do and uh, i really like that about about her in this yeah, if you watch the uh, the making of special that's on like the the special edition DVD, uh, it's called Inside the Labyrinth. You can actually find it on YouTube. Uh, both Jim Henson and David Bowie go on like considerably about just how mature and professional she was to work with. That she did mm. not, you know, that it was not like working with a child actor that that you just they just kind of forgot that she was that she was actually a kid because she was just you know one of the crew. I wonder if it helped that at least on the Henson side. They had a lot of experience acting with kids because of Sesame Street. Oh, probably, yeah. They, and they cast well, right? Because it, it turns out that she is a. Although my wife's my wife's comment was, um, "Oh, she got to, she was a much better actress later." I'm like, "Well, yeah. I mean, she was 14, <laughs> she, she was 14, and the part she you is know, still lo- 14. There yeah. are large portions of this where her job is really to." stand there and be grounded among the weird things that are happening all around her, which is kind of yeah, a thankless yes. job. Like sh- She's giving kind of a flat, naturalistic performance next to David Bowie, just David bowie it up <laughs> as hard as he possibly can. And a dozen puppets. And it works, and it yeah. works for both of their performances, because it makes her seem more normal and him seem more supernatural. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by Casper, a sleep brand that is continuing to revolutionize its products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper has three different models. There's the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. They're all perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. They've got breathable designs that help you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. We used to have to change our blanket throughout the year to get a warmer one in the winter and a cooler one in the summer and we have had since we've had our casper mattress one blanket we can keep the one good blanket on our bed all the time because in the summer it's not too hot and in the winter it's not too cold because of the way that the casper regulates the temperature in the bed it's delivered right to your door you'll ask yourself how how does this happen they mail you essentially a mattress in a box you open it up expands to fill the space and if you have a problem there's free returns as well free shipping and returns in the u.s and canada and you have a hundred nights to sleep on the casper risk-free if you don't like it uh then you can uh, you can send it back but sleep on it and i think you're gonna like it and you do spend a third of your life sleeping so you should probably be comfortable while you're doing that 
So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash Snell and using Snell at checkout. That's casper.com slash Snell, offer code Snell, my last name, for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to Casper for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, David Bowie. Let's talk about David Bowie. He, there are, there are, Bowie he's the that. Goblin King. There are lots of, there are like six David Bowie songs in this that mm-hmm. he wrote for this. Eh. There are, there are, he performs several of them. There are several moments where I was like, oh, and now it's time for a David Bowie music video. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and so, so how, how did everybody, how does everybody feel about Bowie? The, the acting, the character, and also the, uh, the music. I love him. <laughs> See, I knew that. I, I went to you first because I knew that was what you were going to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to say like in the canon of David Bowie's music, I would not put the Labyrinth soundtrack up there very high, except maybe in numbers of times that I've listened to it. <laughs> but <laughs> but like, you know, I'm not going to say that this is his greatest like epic work or anything like that. Uh, in fact, I think the best thing about the soundtrack is how well his songs actually mesh with Trevor Jones' score. They really flow into and in, in out of each other. Um, but performance-wise, I mean, he's not—he's not doing anything terribly like heavy lifting it, it in any way. He's just like Monty said, he's David Bowieing it up. He's being—he's being David Bowie. And there are, but there are a couple of moments I think of real emoting that I just love, uh, especially like in the ballroom scene when when Sarah walks away from him, or at the very end when he's singing. Actually, it's, it's during the songs that he—that I think that he does the most in terms of uh, in terms of actual acting. But I I love every moment of. Yeah, uh, apparently Bowie was interested in doing a movie and a kid's movie particularly. So um, and I'm trying to remember what uh, trivia I've seen that uh, that Jim Henson actually was thinking about Sting being and Michael Jackson. Yeah, Michael Jackson was in wow. the running. They mentioned Prince. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, uh Henson was think- yeah, Henson was thinking Sting. Mick Jagger's name was thrown around at one point. Um <sighs> But um, I think it was his kids that were like, well, what about Bowie? And Hanson was like, OK, we'll try. And, you know, David Bowie was like, this is going to be fun. And that's one of the things I think that comes through is the fact that he's enjoying what he's doing um, the whole way through uh, and taking advantage of, of this experience. Yeah, he even does the baby sounds in uh, in the first the first dance number. Yeah, dance they couldn't magic. get the baby to do it. <laughs> yeah, the baby wouldn't coo, so he just made baby sounds. Like, he was game. I think my favorite part of David Bowie's performance is actually his hands, which are performed by Michael Motion. <laughs> and I don't think they're as impressive now that everybody's seen contact juggling. Mm-hmm. But... In 1986, no one knew what that was or what was going on. Yeah, I, when I was, was a kid, so I thought cool. it was—I thought it was magic. I just—I was completely <laughs> taken in by that. I still do. It's amazing. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I think I think I had seen motion on on Johnny Carson at that point. So I'm, I, I remember watching it, going, "Hey, he's doing the thing that that other guy did," without knowing that he was at all involved in yeah. this. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a picture of it, but I know what's happening, and that's. Michael Motion is crouched down next yes, to David Bowie, sticking yeah. his hands straight there up. There are pictures of, yes, bless their hearts. <laughs> Can't see what he's doing. There's a great sequence on the making of where they show the scene where um, he's standing by the, the the three rocks that look like David Bowie's face and talking to Hoggle and where he has to say that, no, I've got a better idea. And he has to do it like 20 times because Michael Motion, who's crouched down behind him with his arm sticking out, keeps dropping. And can't dropping. see what he's doing. He couldn't yep, see he's his hands. It. He couldn't watch. He had to do it all by touch. <laughs> 
<laughs> so sad. Oh, it's amazing. Wow. Um, I looked it up. Uh, so David Bowie's son is is likewise a contemporary of me mm-hmm. and David and Monty and Jennifer Connelly. So I've got to figure that that was part of it too. Is this idea that mm-hmm. he had a he had a uh, sort of preteen and then early teenager in, who was his child, and so it's like and you know and they probably watched them up at show and things like that. So I, I, it, that part of uh, David Bowie being involved there is, I think it's really interesting the idea that you've got a pop star who is you know universally thought of as cool agree to be in a you know puppet fantasy movie because <laughs> that, that there is I mean I think you have to be. Uh, have a broader view of your career to do that without because I think a lot of pop stars would be mm. like no no I'm not going to do anything like that <laughs> because I'm too cool for that and David Bowie to his credit was like yeah let's do it I got some songs I'm going to write for this thing <laughs> that are some of the lyrics of which really don't fit oh. but whatever we're just going to put them in there it, it was it was a very different time though I mean yeah I mean th- that kind of that kind of theatrical. Um, you know, glam thing was very much in, right? So, so yeah, MTV was still a thing, and it a is new, yeah. the new thing, and that is David Bowie, right? I mean, his he changed his image yeah. a lot, but yep. he definitely glam rock, right? So it 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 works. I don't think he toured as Jareth though, like he did no, with no. Ziggy Stardust, which is exactly. a shame. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would be great. I mean. It, it's not like this was a Muppet movie. I mean, that, no. you know, yeah, you do a cameo in that. This is, this was fantasy. This was high fantasy that happened to be done with, with, with the Muppet folks. Honestly, David Bowie is such a fantasy character himself. Yeah. That's the, that's <laughs> yes. the brilliance yeah. of it is that not only he's a little impish of like, you know, like, oh, I'm going to be in this movie. Isn't that kind of weird? And you're like, all right, David Bowie, whatever you want. Like, okay, I guess it must be cool because you're doing it. So I guess it must be. But also like, he's so weird that you see him in this and you're like, okay weird magical being checks out right that's david bowie so that that it, it's a perfect bit of uh like he lends his own credibility to the part i feel like yeah by yeah him. i mean i i thought he was entirely convincing as some kind of deeply bizarre uh creature from another realm <laughs> right. um, i mean and i and i didn't know you know when i saw this movie the first time i wasn't familiar with bowie at all um so it was just he was just the gobl- goblin king and he was deeply unsettling and um <laughs> you know and sort of it, it, it was just weird and and i thought it worked incredibly well and I love that they give you like, to me, at least, I felt like it was just the right amount of him and his character because, mm-hmm. you know, Sarah's in the whole thing, but you only get every once in a while these, you know, shots of him interacting with, you know, his, his goblin horde and, and, and whatnot. And there is so much room for delightful teenage angsty headcanon about like what his mm-hmm. motivations are and why he, you know, why he brought her there. You know, her story at the beginning it, to her little brother is saying that uh, the king of the goblins had fallen in love with the girl so you have all of these like little you know hints and clues about how strongly he feels about her and even even his costuming sort of evolves from the beginning to the end the first scene that he's in he's in that like very dark black thing that's got sparkles on it and by the end he's wearing white like he's he's evolving himself to try to please her at the end he has the whole speech about everything that he's done he's done for her mm-hmm. you know and he's exhausted from from living up to his her expectations of him and all of that so there's there's kind of this like totally unhealthy you know <laughs> romantic relationship also going on at the same time yeah which i didn't know what to do with that i found that really really creepy this time around watching it i i i did not 
Yeah, I yeah, don't know. The, I, yeah, this time I, this time around, as an adult, I'm I'm looking at that, looking at that, and going like, okay, mm-hmm. you're skating awfully close there. I yeah. think that's on purpose. That's the only monstrous thing about him, really. Yeah. He doesn't look very goblin-y to me. Yeah, she creates him essentially. Is sort of how mm-hmm. I viewed it. It's like this is her. True. Her she get she has all her the power over him, and, and she creates him. So he's as her creation. As you know, of course, he wants to do you know anything she says and he wants to to be around her because she sort of has all the power over him that so that's how i kind of wrote that off is that he's not a he's not a an actual person in that way he is kind of a, a being that was created by her imagination and so he you know he's connected to her yeah, that way. and like you said she never loses her agency you know right. yes yes there are times when things go badly for her but she is continually making her own choices and then you know at the end she finally remembers the line that she always for you know you to have no power over me she finally remembers the line that she kept forgetting um and you know says it with this sort of wonder like you know yeah yeah i do <laughs> um that uh that really works yeah yeah, and you know, uh, one of the things that this character doesn't do, which relieved me because I was afraid of it, that so many kids' mm-hmm. movies especially do, is you have the cut back to the villain scene where they go like, oh, I can't believe they got out of that one. Well, now I'm going to do this to them, right? That that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And when we cut back to David Bowie, it's, you know, he he's either like talking to the baby or he's like <laughs> trying to scare the people around her and threaten them into betraying her. Like, we get that a lot mm-hmm. With Hoggle, where he keeps threatening Hoggle, mm-hmm. and I like that better too as a villain that he's not, or or as the as the enemy of of her in this story. Uh, I like that he doesn't do that. That that he's not doing one of those like uh, you know broad kind of like oh I can't believe they got out of that one kind of thing. And instead he's just like mm-hmm. he's he's always just floating out there doing weird stuff. And and uh, <laughs> it, it's that feels appropriate. Also, uh, Erica, you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned sparkly things, and I'll just point out they had a really great budget for sparkle in this oh, yeah. because very clearly they, whatever object, whatever material makes sparkles, they had a giant box of it and were just and, and like one of those blowers and were just blowing it on everything because every surface in the fantasy world is covered in sparkly, twinkly things. It's amazing. Even the music sounds sounds sparkly there's I, somebody on twitter once sent me a picture of the, the the specific instrument that makes that real shimmery sound i've forgotten the name of it since but yeah even the soundtrack sparkles along mm. with the screen is it a celesta is that i it? think that no. might be it yeah but it's, talking about Jareth, my headcanon is not that she creates him but that he's he is a creature that lives in the goblin kingdom but that when a, a young girl, you know, and I get the impression that this has happened over and over again, and not just because David Bowie says that in the uh, in the making of that was that's my thought too. That that you know, a, a young girl wishes their brother away, and like he just has to go through the same stupid rigmarole every time. <laughs> you know, that go- his 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 goblins run off and and grab the baby, and he he has to basically mold himself to whatever it is that that you know the protagonist needs in their villain, and just does the same thing. Again and again and again. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day. Mm. Yeah, it kind of is. Although, and speaking of what she says at the end, where she you know realizes you have no power over me, I find it really interesting that 
the first scene, the opening scene where she's practicing her lines and the closing scene do not match. She actually misses a line at the Mm -hmm. end. So my headcanon is that that's like a giant loophole that like (laughs) they're going to get back together because she didn't quite do it right. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question I would like to pose to everybody about her companions. Forget Hoggle. No, Ludo I won't or- forget him. I love him. <laughs> you love him? him aside. Okay, he's fine. I love Ludo. Ludo's the one I love. Ludo or Sir Didymus? Okay. That's my question. I like Ludo. I quote, smell bad pretty frequently. Mm. But <laughs> Sir Didymus is so great <laughs> and yeah. is the best. I, yeah, I got to go to Didymus here. I mean, Ludo is, is very nice. And the controlling the rocks thing, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but, you know, he's not he's not a knight on a steed. Where, you know, the the dog has horse sound effects when he's running. Like, <laughs> everything about that is awesome. Yep. Or the squealing brakes as they run into the... Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, I would have to go with the conversationalist myself. I mean, Ludo is adorable, but I can hug most anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I also go with Sir Didymus because he comes with Ambrosius. And while it, it always sort of bothered me that the, the Muppet Ambrosius doesn't quite match the, uh, the real dog as well as I would like. I don't care. They're still both cute. Yeah. Yeah, Didymus. The the, the Monty Python-esque um, comedy mm. of it really appeals. That too. He's great. He's great. But I, I'm going to I'm going to stick up for Ludo. Like, I love that we meet <laughs> Ludo and he's hanging upside down. He's a monster. Nope. First off, Hoggle doesn't even want to go around the corner because there's monster sounds. Right. And she's like, well, OK, I'm going to go around the corner. And then there's uh, the this uh, Ludo is suspended. He is a giant monster. He is being uh, mistreated by all of the little whatever they are they're goblins, goblins with nipper sticks. Yeah, they're mean. And she, uh, she, I was going to say cuts him down, but no, she very simply unties a very loosely tied knot on her, in a rope, thereby dropping him to the ground very hard, which I, I wanted to mention as an aside, the challenge of making puppets feel like they have weight, like Ludo has a person in them, but like some sometimes mm-hmm. puppets, these puppets have to fly or crash to the ground, and it's fascinating to see how they do it to make them feel like they have weight, because obviously if you just threw the puppet... It would look like an empty shell of a puppet. Yeah. Ludo's costume had weight. The, the yeah. first version was over 100 pounds, yeah. and they had to find ways to streamline mm. it to 75, and they still had to switch <laughs> actors because they kept getting too tired. Yeah, Ludo, Ludo is definitely uh, definitely has weight that the others don't. But when he crashes <laughs> to the ground, like, and then mm-hmm. she talks to him, and he's, he's yes, he is kind of subliterate, but he's very fun. He's very uh, nice, and uh, I like that whole kind of... Um, I see, he's not really a monster thing. I think I really like mm-hmm. that. Like it sounds like a monster and looks like a monster, but he's actually the victim here. And then he's grateful. So you get that kind of like like uh, pulling the thorn out of the lion's paw kind of thing. Where now mm-hmm. he's uh, he's kind of loyal. And then later he tells the rocks to appear, which is great. I really like the scene where they they escape into that thing that turns out to just be a tower that's completely surrounded, and he just kind of pops off the top. I think that's a great <laughs> little moment. So I. I, yeah. I I like Leto. Yes, Sir Didymus is hilarious, and he always when he when he's surrounded, he says, "Aha, I have you surrounded," and all of that. I love that. Uh, that's a he's a, a great character too. But like, I already was uh, loving Ludo at that point, so I'm just gonna. I'm going to stick with stick with Ludo. That's fair. I I don't like the fact that we had to uh, that we had to forget Hoggle. To, to, to yeah, why, we, why did we forget because, Hoggle? 
because he has he also has a character arc because you know you've got sarah with her her arc but but hoggle starts off as you know a really selfish dwarf peeing into a into a pond yep and uh, and gassing and fairies. fairies yeah exactly which is the most brian frowdy thing in the entire <laughs> <laughs> yep well except for toby who is literally brian froud's son well i literally a froud i like that the the fairy bites uh, Sarah and she's mm-hmm. like, oh, what? The, they they bit me. I thought that they did nice things. And Hoggle's like, no, they do not do nice things. Shows what you. That's great. That's great. Um, no, Hoggle's. Yeah, Hoggle. Um, he doesn't want her to be around. He tries to get rid of her. And then later, of course, he. Uh, I mean, he's repeatedly under threat from the Goblin King, and. Uh, he he is in this middle state where he's becoming her friend, but also he's deathly afraid of the Goblin King, and it leads to him giving her the poisoned peach, uh, which is going to wipe her memory away, which he does and immediately regrets, but he still does it, and uh, and that leads to a plot digression for a while until she finally kind of wakes up and he's he's very sad. Talking about seeing Hoggle as an actual character and not as a puppet, I feel like like his performance right there when he says, oh, you know, damn you, Jareth, and damn me too. It's just, it's heart-wrenching. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, and then she, when, she, when she has the, the, the peach, she's in her weird, she has her weird, like, uh, I like that scene, too, where she where she's like, it tastes bad, and he's like, no, and she's like, oh, Hoggle, what did you do? And then she, you know, because she, she doesn't just, like, immediately, magic doesn't just happen to her. She realizes it, and they had that moment, which is very sad. And then she ends up in the, like, simulation of her room with the junk <laughs> lady giving her, like, her uh, her stuffed animals and toys and weird building sets and stuff like that. Um, which is a, a super bizarre scene before she finally realizes it's all fake and it all kind of cum- crumbles around here, her in an, a remarkably, you know, they built that set to fall apart, which is kind mm-hmm. of... It's, uh, it's a very time banditsy. Yeah, it's so analog moment. in in mm-hmm. how it just all kind of breaks apart as she's as she's yeah. rejecting it. But that's a, that's a nice uh, thing that happens after she's poisoned by her friend. I, <laughs> I, I relate to that scene so much. I'm so anti-stuff. I just I don't like having things around. So, And I, I wonder, I didn't even think about it until I watched this tonight. I wonder if part of that is because I watched Labyrinth as, as well, a, you know, yeah. <laughs> a teen and, and realized it's all junk Like at that time. And it's just stuck with me ever since. Well, it was funny watching today and and you know that comes up and then at the end of the movie where she's back in her room and she's sort of putting stuff away and she's like okay you can have the bear and i'm gonna get rid of this stuff and and i looked at the boys and i said this is this the moral of the story is no hoarding which you know (laughs) coming coming from a doll museum childhood that's like yes that's a good idea don't keep stuff (laughs) but then all of her dolls are alive and are her friends again Mm -hmm. yes I, I didn't mention that part of my childhood. She doesn't need the unalive ones because she's, she's got the real ones now. That's a good point. What good are you? Yeah. You you're don't do a, anything. You're just a bookend. I'll take the real hoggle. Thank you, you. You just stand there and stare at me. That's creepy. I'm going to go with these guys. I think the junk, junk lady is... Um, I was going to say I like her. I don't like her. I don't like her at all. But I think she is really suitably creepy. Yes. Um, <laughs> And I, I like uh, I, so I, I like that about her that that she is giving her all the things and she won't go away and it's this it's nightmarish kind of scenario I think that's really good yeah because she's actually turning Sarah into another like her it's yeah, like she's exactly. actually like piling yeah. the things on and they're sticking to Sarah's back until the point where she's going to be weighed down the way this lady is yeah I thought that was a fantastic she's probably scene. trying to uh, save her own younger brother 
100 oh. years ago and now she's just still there i i, I kind of thought you know like uh, even even at the beginning with you know don't go that way go this way i think all of these creatures are are perhaps influenced by jareth as well and so you know it's like here here weigh her down mm-hmm. weigh her down right. and yet it's having the op- again the opposite effect that all of the things are reminding her and just go oh oh wait a second and then she stands up and breaks book. it all down like, he yeah. re- they recreate it so well that the key to her salvation is actually still in there because because the book is recreated faithfully right yeah what about the wise man i wanted to mention the wise man which is uh <laughs> which is operated by frank oz actually and of course the wise man and his hat who talks but, yes. but not voiced by frank not oz. voiced by nope. frank oz voiced just by operated. michael horder yes who's delightful and there's a and, and, and he has a hat who talks too and this is a very i, I liked this scene because i found it just completely bizarre and also kind of <laughs> python-esque <laughs> the idea that the uh that the bird on his head is talking to him and they go back and forth and they've got like a kind of double act that they're doing but he does you know he does help her I get cryptically, but he does help her in telling her that sometimes the way forward is the way back. Um, and and I also like how this scene ends, which is she gives him her ring and Hoggle is totally um, aghast at this. <laughs> like, he didn't even help. Why are you giving him things? And it's like, because she's nice and she's trying to do the right thing. That was one of the moments when, when, he, when he first walks out and the hat starts talking and you realize it's a bird. That's when the 13-year-old started going, what? What, yeah. what is going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I love that they have like a, a senior wences. It's not even like a, a generic double act. It is pretty much, you know, uh, are we done? We're done. It's all right. It's all right. Yep. You know, it's mm-hmm. total yeah. senior wences. I felt like that was a very Henson-y, Jim Henson yes. scene. Yes. More than a Python scene. The, the yeah. scene I thought was the most Monty Python is when they're walking past the stone faces that are saying, go back. Oh, I love oh, those guys. to say it. Oh, those guys in the door knockers i like i like both of both of those guys yeah the big stone heads that are like those, those are, look it's our the job door knockers to say statler this. and waldorf yeah everybody in this movie is statler and waldorf <laughs> <laughs> when, when she has to do the uh one of us tells the truth and one of us is a liar scene mm-hmm. oh yeah which i think is done really well in this movie because they don't just yes. run through it they actually explain the logic and get some character beats out of it mm-hmm. but they're also heckling her while she does it, and they're heckling themselves. Saying, I've never understood it. We we just stand here and say this stuff, man. <laughs> and the guys on the bottom don't even know the answer. Like, no, yeah. you gotta ask them. <laughs> and that's followed by my favorite scene in the movie, or at least what I think is the creepiest scene, the uh, chimney of hands. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that also oh, freaked out so the 13-year-old. Bo- so both in terms of, you know, what it was and how she was interacting with it, but just then the idea that uh, all these hands are creating faces and doing all the talking and there are no puppets. It is yeah. just the handwork. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is maybe, for all things, the most technically fascinating scene to me. Yeah, and, and each of the hand faces is a very different face as yes. well. Right. Like, they're yeah. not the same face. Yeah, they actually built a 40-foot, like, 40-foot tall tube, basically half tube, with a whole bunch of, like, fake hands mm. and then spots for people's real hands to go in. Mm. And it was... It took them a really long time, apparently, to come up with all of the faces and the way that that would work, because you would actually have three guys with their bodies like pressed up against each other so that they could have six hands at the same time, like doing. And then they all had to sort of match together. It was it was really intricate. And it's such a fourth wall breaking move. 
because of course we all know these are puppets the whole time, but to actually show us the hands, but still make it work. Yep. <laughs> uh, the other scene I wanted to mention, we, we touched on it in passing is uh, the Escher scene, which mm-hmm. is, which is one of those, I had one of those moments of like, Oh, it's monument Valley. And then I backed up. I said, which is itself yeah, just yes. doing Escher. <laughs> like, let's get back to, I mean, I was, I, I was in college in the early nineties. I had an MC Escher print on my wall in my dorm room. I know how this goes. I think I had the hand, <laughs> the hand that's writing on itself, I think is the one that I had, or maybe it was right. the, the globe and the hand holding the globe. Anyway, this the wait for the MC Escher podcast, which is coming both, later and it's earlier going and over there and we did it before and we'll do it later it will be recording itself <laughs> what uh, <laughs> no, no. you'll listen to it but the podcast will be what you're saying while you're listening huh yeah. that was the main shot from the commercials for this movie mm-hmm. especially the shot of uh david bowie walking along upside down and taking a step and wrapping around yeah. the top yeah. of the planet. It only happens the one time, but it is cool. Like, oh, yeah, he totally yeah. can just wrap I, right around. Yeah, I thought, I thought that scene was done really, really well. I thought the, the set was was very well done. And it looked, uh, you know, it kind of looked convincing. Like there was, you know, you, you lose track of which way it was supposed to be up. And you just kind of accept it as, okay, this is a weird, gravity-defying, bizarre place. I thought it was cool. They purposely lit it sort of from all different directions so that the shadows are going in every which direction as well, rather than just lighting it from above to make it obvious which way is up. And I like that she's trying to, I mean, there, because of the limitations of the, the time and the set, um, the geography of it is, you know, not, it doesn't necessarily follow like the baby's over there and then the baby's over there. And I don't think you could write down like exactly what happens. It's more that she's walking around and trying to find the baby and the, she sees the baby in some other location and then she thinks she has to go this way, but you don't actually, it doesn't follow because I don't think they could make a set that worked like that. But it, I, I still think it's effective in that the, you know, the baby's on the move. She's trying to figure it out. She's solving a puzzle. We don't, we don't solve the puzzle with her, but you can see that she's trying to solve the puzzle and she gets pretty close because she finally gets on the same plane as the baby, but the baby's down below and she's further up above. And I thought it was, I thought it's, it was very effective. Obviously a modern version of this would be, you know, you'd swoop around and there'd be way more of those David Bowie making a 90 degree angle kind of things (laughs) and all of that. But for the time, Mm -hmm. I think really effective. And it, and it brought to mind um, uh, Monsters Incorporated with the uh, the doors and stuff. It's a similar kind of like mm-hmm. you've got this multiplanar thing that you're trying to navigate around, and 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 uh, the the thing you're chasing is always just kind of in the wrong spot or just out of reach, which is what happens with that adorable baby, by the way, that just is going to keep on crawling, I guess, until it gets <laughs> to a an edge. Yeah, and what I really like about that scene, it echoes the ballroom scene um, when she is learning not to take things for granted, not to assume that what she's seeing is what is. And instead of continuing to follow the rules, she she breaks it. She breaks out. She, you know, in the ballroom, she takes the chair and smashes her way out of the um, out of that scene. Uh, and then here she, you know, closes her eyes and jumps, realizing mm-hmm. that that's the only yeah. way to break this particular trap. They needed that baby from train spotting because it could crawl on ceilings. <laughs> <laughs> when and you say you know if, if we had uh, if we did it today with today's technology, just watch Doctor Strange. There's that whole oh, yeah. sequence mm-hmm. where oh, they're yeah. chasing and and things telescoping out, and it's uh, very Escher. 
Yeah. I, I want to talk jump back and talk about the, the ballroom scene a little bit more because I, that's my favorite scene. And not just because I love that song so much, but... Um, but I, I love the, the way that it was staged. It's supposed to be like a ball that's taking place in a bubble because you see her like floating right. away in the bubble. Um, so <laughs> One of those so, bubbles that is also sometimes a glass ball, but sometimes a bubble. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. And so, you know, they have hanging chandeliers and like multi, you know, different, you know, levels to, to the set and stuff. Um, but but as we were talking about earlier about how she's she is so young and she's sort of created this world that that sequence specifically has all of these sort of like 18th century Venetian, you know, garb and masks that are a little bit risque and and very phallic, like on purpose. And sort of, you know, you see you know women reaching out and fondling like the noses of their partners, masks and stuff. And it's it's specifically made um, to to be more adult than she's actually ready for. It. And she she clearly feels it. she's she's in a place that she's not quite comfortable and and she's sort of bit off more than she can chew in terms of, of being an adult. And that comes across really well. Yeah. As, while at the same time, it's sort of like, you know, every young girl's princess fantasy. I mean, totally. you know, she's in that absolutely gorgeous dress. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who's a, a cosplayer, and that is one of her costumes is <gasps> is the white dress. Oh, I, wow. I'll share a picture sometime, Erica, because it, it, she does such a good job with it. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that that the idea that she is, you know, in this you know, fantasy princess world. Um, and, you know, there she's trying to find, you know, her partner, she's trying to find uh, Jareth and gradually realizing that, you know, this is yet another trap. It's yet another oubliette, you know, that she's like in this place that supposedly there is no way out of um, until she realizes that she's got to try something and smashes her way out. And they're all laughing at her because right. like they're so they're 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 much more, you know, worldly worldly than she is but uh but that one of my favorite moments maybe my favorite moment of the whole whole movie is when she pulls away from him and, and it's Jareth's reaction because mm-hmm. his mm, face is yes. not like curses foiled again or oh you know she's on to me and she she got out of this it is he is crushed he's really really sad and it just like it breaks my heart a little bit at the same time as I'm cheering for her for being like you go girl take that chair and smash the bubble that that was one of my mother's favorite elements of the movie is is that it's not not uh, cartoonish evil. It's not scheming. It's it's a yeah. very seductive evil, and it's a very mm-hmm. uh, melancholy evil mm-hmm. by the end. Uh, and and she said that's uh, maybe more true to life. Cartoonish and scheming is exactly what I was trying to get at earlier. Where I really appreciate the fact that yeah. Bowie is not ever in that position of like, now I will have a new plan. Mm-hmm. It's just like, nope, he's weird. I'll have you, my pretty. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. weird and. And and threatening and creepy, um, but not like broad uh, mustache twirling villain. He's almost more petulant than anything uh-huh. else. Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. a little emo. He's a little emo. <laughs> Just yeah. a bit. Like, how about this then? <laughs> also, when he's when we cut back and he's with the goblins and the baby, I like that he 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 uh, he definitely exudes this sort of disgust of like you stupid goblins. I'm sick by I'm sickened by the sight of you all. You're, like <laughs> you're so dumb I have to tell you and to laugh at my jokes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's too good for them too. So he's he's like, you know, he doesn't it's not just one thing. He kind of hates everything. And that's okay. He wants a good conversationalist too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, what have we not talked about? That the is fart scene. Oh, oh God! Oh, smell Damn it, Monty. bad. I watched it with the captions on, and oh, no. and all of a sudden they get to the bog, and it and just in brackets, bog makes farting noises. 
<laughs> and that caption kept coming up regularly through the whole scene. Some of them were burping noises. Mm-hmm. True. True. The captions did not distinguish. It did make me laugh a little bit. I have to I have to admit that. I mean, <laughs> it, it, this is a medium where you cannot impart smells. And so instead you have lots of farting and burping noises. And Ludo, of course, saying smell bad all the time just to get across that everybody is really uh, unhappy. A bit too much, perhaps. Well, maybe. Uh, I That scene is very... Uh, it's, it's the only phrase I can come up with. It's on the nose. <laughs> but I I accept it because I like smell bad so much, and it's a great introduction to Sir Didymus. His whole point of view is, oh, it smells wonderful yes. here. So rich and vibrant. You go, all right, so this guy is that. I, I got the idea of smell bad after the 50th time. I, I was kind of okay. <laughs> Well, you know, you got to remember, this is a movie for kids. And I, I remember that, you know, I had discovered it when I was a little bit older. And I remember my, my high school boyfriend being like, oh, this is my favorite movie. Can we watch this? And he's like, oh, I remember watching that. I love that scene in the bog of Eternal Stench. And I was just like, oh, God. Uh-huh. <laughs> Farts are funny. Especially if they're in your general direction. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Terry Jones certainly thinks uh-huh. they're funny. Some, yep. Somewhere Steve Lutz just sat up and just smiled yep. and he doesn't know why. <laughs> Yeah, even when, after Ludo calls the rocks and they come up out of the bog of eternal stench, for Which some is reason, adorable. as he as he walks across them, like, they each, each of the rocks make farting sounds. Why? Yeah. Also, also Why? did you notice that Ludo is so big that, um, at like, an extra rock comes up for him? Yes. <laughs> yep. Because otherwise, I think the, the actor would have fallen in to whatever that yeah. was, that puddle. <laughs> yeah, plus the dog needed it. Yes, That's the dog true. did need it. I, I had a, the way that's cut where the dog goes across the rocks. I was like, wow, how many times did they have to have the dog go across there and then intercut them to make it seem like it goes straight across? Because there's like several different angles and shots. I'm like, oh, boy, get the dog to cross the uh, cross the rocks. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I like the, the I like the showdown between Didymus and Ludo and 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 Sarah puzzling things out. So I'm, you know, I, I, I can kind of ignore the farting noises. To, uh, well, you don't extent. have to smell it you know that's true that is true it's not smell right no well i would uh, like to briefly criticize sarah at the beginning of the movie okay uh she's very whiny about having to go in and babysit her little brother mm-hmm. was she going to stay outside in that thunderstorm really her ba- <laughs> brother doesn't need that much babysitting it doesn't look like mm-hmm. yeah settle down sarah that's all. Fifteen year olds. They're the worst. Yeah. I think she's just she's very bitter at her uh at her stepmother. Because mm-hmm. because stepmother. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I mean, fair enough. I, I can get the, the overreacting to that. I just I just thought she was exceptionally nasty to the baby. And it was just it was it was just too much. And actually come think of it, um that does support my theory that she has no friends because <laughs> her stepmother has stopped asking, Do you have plans? She That's true. Plans. You should go out on dates. You don't go out on dates. Yeah. Well, I think part of that is, um, you know, the Sarah at the beginning of the movie is basically basically acting like um, like she is the put upon heroine in this story, you know, that she's, you know, she, she's trying to do her own thing. But no, she has to take care of the baby. And yes, she is being theatrical um, yep. mm. ju- and for her audience of herself. Uh, and then gradually, as she starts going through the labyrinth, you know, she at first she's sort of playing the part a little bit when she starts the labyrinth. And then she gradually loses that persona. And we start seeing the real Sarah uh, emerging through the rest of the movie. 
To her credit, though, like she's got a little bit of a point with the with the parents. I mean, they don't appear very much, but you do have the stepmother saying you should have dates at your age, which is totally not cool, stepmom. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you have the dad being like, it's OK, I'll talk to her. And he goes upstairs and literally says, Sarah, are you in there? OK, well, we really have to go. So we fed Toby. Bye. <laughs> like, that's <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah, they're, they're not exactly parents of the year. No, no. <laughs> so what you're saying is that the cat doesn't talk at the end. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just I was thinking honestly more seriously about that reference is is this yeah. this you can view this as a coming of age story that like literally this is when she goes from being um, an annoying kid to a more fully realized turning into an adult in her experience with the Goblin King. I don't know. But still Same. pretty bad babysitter, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. she maybe appreciates her her uh, her little brother a little bit better at the end, though. But better babysitter mm-hmm. at the end. Yes. After almost losing him to the Goblin King again, which would have been a bad babysitting job there it's it's the dark crystal crossed with adventures in babysitting all right that's all (laughs) (laughs) i I like that as soon as they introduce the goblins at the beginning they make sure to have a dumb joke goblin to establish Mm -hmm. the tone of the whole movie it's not going to be scary we're going to have jokes yeah yep i actually i remember the first time that i saw it just like being completely like took my breath away shocked when you see like suddenly it just cuts from her in the room to oh my god it's a whole bunch of goblins <laughs> and then the second time and third time it cuts back it, it gets funny because he says that stuff and and i think that they do a good job of sort of balancing balancing that throughout even at the end when you have a uh, humongous the giant like guard gatekeeping thing uh hoggle jumps on top of it and pulls off its head and it's like a tiny little goblin inside so like wearing, a sort of, yeah. wearing a bomber jacket wearing a bomber jacket i'm yeah. sorry the costume <laughs> mitigate details mitigate the scariness oh, yeah. that was something i wanted to comment on is that i like how this movie plays with scale a lot mm-hmm. like you have the little tiny guys moving the paving stones and a few times you have like the cleaners and it's this giant machine being driven by a tiny little person mm-hmm. yes or, oh the perfect like who in whoville moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> that yeah. contraption they yeah. do so much you think this is big oh it's really small mm-hmm. for shortening for shortening weird shot stuff mm-hmm. i just want to say that those orange uh those orange monsters that like took their heads off and stuff those were the creepiest things and still terrifying. i yeah. i hated them when i was a child <laughs> and I, it turns out i still hate them and i don't and i was very upset to see them coming back in the final scene as like her friends <laughs> yeah they were not her yeah. friends they were terrible preach it sister preach it yeah that's that particular music scene and um scene is one of the weaker points for me um just because i think you can so clearly see uh the special effects happening compared to a lot of the other puppetry yeah and there was something about them that was just like it was just like super gross and i don't know it creeped me out in a way that was not i think the way that they wanted it to be creepy it was just like i think they did i mean maybe it's just uh, seeing terry jones talk about that sequence um when he was when he was writing it and stuff like he was going for the body horror angle like he Mm. you know Mm. the the taking off the hands and the the heads and stuff and (laughs) yeah he had he had very strong like ideas about it so much so that he had he had completely like he was still talking about the lines that he had written as opposed to the song that david bowie wrote (laughs) (laughs) i like the song yeah it's a fun song kind of don't like any of the songs in this movie <laughs> they don't do it for me they feel like uh like sec- you know 
the the songs that aren't the singles on a mediocre David Bowie album to me, which is <laughs> I, which again, it's David Bowie and he's there in his costume, and so I kind of was like, all right, this is kind of fun, but as a song on its own, I was like, yeah, this is not mm-hmm. particularly yeah. memorable in any that, way. That was no ashes to ashes, pal. <laughs> I wouldn't mind actually. I even as much as I love this, as much as I love the songs, I I would be happy to lose most of them, but uh, but I think I would need the ballroom scene and the Escher scene and then the closing credits music like as long as i had those three i'm fine oh i need the scenes like it's important that we <laughs> no, see but him I, mean playing. Music, but I need those you, you need, like, yeah. you need those the song in the ballroom scene they really works work so well together. like i really dislike the song dance magic dance but i love that we like you said like we see what david bowie is up to and he's just playing with the kid Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's fun. That's why he wanted a kid. He wanted to play with the baby. Why not? Well, this was, it was fun to watch this movie. It, it, it feels weird that this, it felt like it fell through a parallel, you know, a pocket from a parallel universe or something. Cause it's like, uh, I should have seen it and yet I never saw it. And so now I'm, I'm left looking back at 30, you know, 30 years later and, and, uh, and wondering about it. I'm just super relieved that you didn't hate it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, me too. I, I had points when I was really thinking, like, is Jason really going to like this? <laughs> I, you know, I got a soft spot in my heart for Muppets. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a moment with those goblins where I'm like, oh, this is just like when they have the wall of like, like a little like rats or mice or whatever, like the wall of little Muppets in a Muppet show gag or in a Muppet movie. Like it's I get that move, Jim Henson. Like I, I recognize that. And so for me, that was like and it's a fantasy movie. So it's again, you get look, you know, if Yoda works, then you get to do this. Like, it's weird that there's a genre of filmed entertainment that is humans and puppets interacting together, but it is, and it's fine. And I'm well aware of it. So for me, it was like, I get, I totally get this movie. And if I had seen it when I was like 10, I would have really been into it. But I, you know, I, I, I missed it. When I wasn't 10 when it came out anyway, so I, you know, again, same age as Jennifer Connelly, so I would have seen it at 15. I was probably too jaded a stupid teenager like she is at the beginning of this movie to actually appreciate it. <laughs> I, I thought it was, I thought it was uh, interesting, you know, watching this. There were only like a couple of points where the special effects were bad enough to make me like step out a bit. So it was one was the scene with the orange guys throwing their heads mm-hmm. around because they were awful anyway, but, um, but, and then the other one was, um, was a couple of times I noticed, uh, like that they reversed the video, um, to make some rocks mm-hmm. roll in different directions. And, oh, yeah. and there, and yeah. there was everything to do with the owl was, was kind of terrible, but, but well, the, <laughs> for know, the time it was these... groundbreaking though. That was like sure, the very sure. first fully realized CGI, uh, attempt. Right. Yeah. Right, but like, but all of you know, all of the puppets and everything. Like, I just accepted them as characters the whole time, you know. Or every time, you know, something was thrown through the air or whatever. Like it, it, you know. I think that in terms of the storytelling, uh, it doesn't have to look real at all um, to be, you know, accepted. And that was that was interesting because I, I was expecting to find the special effects really cheesy, but it it wasn't at all. I think having the puppets yeah. again. One of the weird things about once you accept that the puppets are people is that my standards for like what's real 
and what's not real are totally thrown out the window because it's like I've I've accepted that the puppets are real and I, I don't mean like they're so unreal that it doesn't matter it's more like once I've uh, once I've bought in to the puppets I was like oh this is what this is is there are puppets and people and they're all fantasy characters together at that point it's like yeah all right I, like it would take it takes a lot more to shake me out of that that mode of viewing mm-hmm. I think right yeah I mean the boys were totally with it they my the thirteen year old will point out bad graphic design or bad fonts you know oh my god comic sans oh papyrus <laughs> and and he he gets angry sometimes when he <laughs> sees those and things and and so he'll point out bad effects and and he did point out you know where you could notice the uh the the green screen the black velvet whatever yeah <laughs> and um little things like the owl but in terms of the characters and the puppets and the door knockers and everything like that nothing not a peep and he's normally the one who's like ripping into that and and he'll do that with modern cgi things going well that's clearly not real and that doesn't look right and that's you know and yeah it's what whatever however jim henson developed and and the whole team how they developed all their work uh i mean it still works today it still works on these kids I mean, I guess part of it is just staying well to one side of the uncanny valley so that you never get that that yeah. uh, effect. It, it's not supposed to look realistic. It's supposed to look kind of cartoony. And it looks cartoony, but gorgeous. Like, yeah. they yes. didn't have computers to do these sets. There, I guess there's a saying in uh, the world of theater, you don't go home whistling the sets. Exactly. <laughs> but sometimes you do. Everything is so precisely realized mm-hmm. that... Everything looks amazing. And even though you know, well, there's got to be a matte painting like 20 feet behind those guys because they didn't really right. build 20 acres of labyrinth. <laughs> right? <laughs> what? It looks so yeah. cool. Um, Erica, I could tell you the thing that I didn't like is the fiery, the fireys uh, dance. I thought that I was like I thought that was super boring and that was the part where I was like, <laughs> why am I here? And then it ended and it was fine again. The head is not being dribbled. It's not. It's yeah. just being moved right. up yeah, and down. Was, that was not right. good. <laughs> so there. Yeah, that is that is by far my least favorite part of the movie, and it always has been. Like I've, I've never, never really liked it. I, I actually prefer to listen to the song on the soundtrack by itself mm. without having to see that. Mm. Um, again, I don't. I'm not in, like in love with it, but I I like it much better without the visuals. But the good news <laughs> is, if you get through that scene, then there's all, all the fart jokes happen right after that. Yeah, so. there's, there's a chunk of the movie that I sometimes check my phone. Mm. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> all right well this has been a lot of fun talking about this and i'm glad that i didn't ruin erica's uh erica's happy place so that's good yes too. i'm so glad you did too and you know every single time i watch this movie i find something new because there's just so much going mm-hmm. on there's so much happening like i never noticed before that you know the three rocks that that make david bowie's face which someday i want to win the lottery and have three rocks like that in my yard but uh, <laughs> that you can actually see that in the long shot like that's like just a scene before that when hoggle's walking by himself in the maze like i never noticed that before i've seen this movie a hundred mm-hmm. times and i noticed that for the first time i also noticed that when they get to the uh to the goblin city uh to the castle there are two bottles of milk sitting outside the castle door the milk delivery has come just right. before they arrived. Right. I never saw it before. There it was. Oh, they need the second bottle now. They've got the baby. That's true. That's right. I would like to thank my uh, my panel for discussing Labyrinth. Uh, Monty Ashley, thank you for being here. That's Prince of the Land of Stench. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. I'll give you that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I'll give you that. Uh, Shannon Sutterth, thank you. Uh, always a pleasure. 
David J. Lore, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. This is this is the best conversation I've had about Lady Hawk yet. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it may be the last. Yes, I hope. Katie Mack, thank you so much for being on The Incomparable. It was great to have you. I hope to have you back sometime soon. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. I'm glad I had an excuse to watch that film again as well. Hey. And Erica Ensign, wouldn't have done it without you. I am exhausted from living up to your expectations of me. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, I have been your host, Jason Snell. Thanks for listening to The Incomparable. We'll see you next week. Smell bad. (laughs) 